America and other free and open societies face crucial challenges and opportunities abroad that affect security and prosperity at home. This is a series of conversations with guests who bring deep understanding of today's battlegrounds and creative ideas about how to compete, overcome challenges, capitalize on opportunities, and secure a better future. I am H.R. McMaster. This is Battlegrounds. In today's episode of Battlegrounds, our focus is on the Korean Peninsula and an American ally, South Korea, a nation closest to the dangerous dictatorship across the 38th parallel in North Korea. Our guest is Ambassador Hu Young Ang, a graduate of Seoul National University and Georgetown's School of Foreign Service. Ambassador Ahn became a Korean Minister of Foreign Affairs diplomat in 1979 a turbulent year in which South Korea's intelligence chief assassinated Korean President Park Jong-hee. It was the beginning of a period of reform that would transform South Korea into an economic powerhouse and a vibrant democracy. As his country's ambassador to the Barack Obama administration and the nascent Donald Trump administration, Ahn fostered cooperation between the two allies during a period of escalating North Korean provocations. The story of today's U.S.-Korea relationship begins at the end of World War II. Soviet soldiers entered the North, and the U.S. soldiers entered the South to free the Korean people from 35 years of imperial Japanese control. Cold War competition hardened the divide between North and South at the 38th parallel. The Soviets chose Kim Il-sung to be the so-called great leader of North Korea initiating what would become the world's only communist hereditary dictatorship. A dictatorship based on cult of personality, brutal repression and extreme nationalism that celebrates racial purity and self-reliance. In June 1950, only months after the last U.S. troops departed South Korea, Kim Il-sung invaded. His army rapidly seized Seoul, and drove south until U.S. forces deployed from Japan halted the offensive outside Pusan. In the three-year-long war that followed, the capital city changed hands four times. General Douglas MacArthur's bold offensive at Incheon led forces north to Yalu, after which a massive Chinese offensive drove combined United Nations forces back. South Korea and UN forces fought against the North Korean and Chinese armies, reinforced with covert Soviet air support as the war settled into a brutal, protracted stalemate. Almost three million people died as a direct result of the war, including nearly 40,000 Americans. The war ended with an armistice that the North has violated countless times with egregious attacks. Attacks continued across all three Kim family dictatorships. It became obvious in the early 1990s that the Gulag state known as the Hermit Kingdom was pursuing the most destructive weapons on Earth. Across three decades, efforts to convince North Korea to abandon its nuclear and missile programs have repeated the same failed pattern of provocation, extortion of concessions, and extended negotiations that concluded in weak agreements. North Korea has continued its nuclear and missile programs, despite facing the U.S.-led strategy of maximum pressure meant to convince Kim Jong-un that his regime is safer without nuclear weapons than with them. Noble South Korean and U.S. efforts for sustained dialogue have foundered since a failed Donald Trump-Kim Jong-un summit in Hanoi in 2019. Meanwhile, enforcement of unprecedented U.N. Security Council sanctions have been inconsistent. China, which shares a 1,420-kilometer border with North Korea, across which 95% of North Korea's trade flows, prioritizes stability of the Kim family dictatorship and its desire to drive the United States out of Northeast Asia over its stated intention to denuclearize the peninsula. Welcome, Ambassador Ho Young An. Thank you for joining us for the inaugural season of Battlegrounds. And I would like to thank you for your many years of service as a diplomat 
and all that you've done to advance the U.S.-South Korea alliance. It was a real pleasure to get to know you when you were serving as South Korea's ambassador during a season of political transitions in Washington and in Seoul, uh, and a season of frequent provocations from Pyongyang. Now we're both in academia, and it is really great to see you. <laughs> All right. Well, pleasure is certainly mine as well. And then thank you so much for inviting me, uh, as you rightly pointed out, as, at, at, at the initial season of your, your background series. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ambassador. And I thought we could just begin, uh, and before we talk about North Korea, I think our viewers would like to learn about your own country, and maybe in particular, the miracle of South Korea especially since you entered government service in, in 1979. And I thought you might share your perspective on what South Korea has achieved, what some have called the miracle of South Korea, especially since the reforms uh, of, the, of the 1980s. Well, General, I think I better start with some numbers. And then when I joined Korean Foreign Service back in 1978, then per capita GDP of South Korea was uh, $1,300. World average at the time, 1978, it was $2,000, which means South Korean per capita GDP, we were $700 short of world average, which means in 78, whether you believe it or not, Korea was one of the poorest countries in the world. So that was in 1978. Today, per capita GDP of South Korea, there is $30,000. And then there is something called 3050 group. And they are, a group, they are a group of countries which have, uh, well, more than $30,000 per capita GDP and then 50 million population. Do you know how many, how many members they have in the 3050 group? Only seven. <laughs> <laughs> Only seven countries are there. So that's the number. And then, of course, the obvious question would be, how did you make it? And then, of course, there are a large number of reasons. And I think, and I, think I, I can talk about only two. One of them is, well, very favorable security and trading environment, which in fact was made possible thanks to United Nations, IMF, World Bank, and then, and then in case of Korea, WTO and mutual security treaty between Korea and the United States. All of them put together, I call them international architecture, put together, by the United States, with the leadership of the United States after World War II. And then when I think about the global architecture after World War II, then several names, several US leaders' names come up in my mind, which are FDR, Harry Truman, George Marshall, Dean Acheson, and then General, you remember Dean Acheson's memo, which was titled, Present at the Creation. Right. Creation. Creation meant creation, among other things, of the architecture. And that, in fact, was enormously helpful for, so, for Korea's development as a nation. Right. Second factor, second factor which I think was, was responsible for Korea's development as a nation, I think it was the can-do spirit. We worked hard, we studied hard, and I remember uh, there used to be a news, uh, news magazine called Newsweek, and in 1970s, it had a special edition on Korea in 1970s. And then I still remember one sentence in the special edition. It read, Koreans maybe are the only people in the whole world who make the Japanese look lazy. <laughs> so, so, so that's one sentence I still remember. But at the same time, I think the whole nation, it didn't, didn't not only worked hard, but they moved in one single direction. The direction was opening up liberalization, globalization, that I think put together along with very favorable global international architecture and the candle spirit of Koreans, they in fact dovetailed very well and then pushed Korea to reach where we are today. Well, you know, I think at a time when we need some confidence, we should we should take some confidence from that that experience. You know, I, I think right. about I think about South Korea in 1953, right at the end of really decades of war, a country that had been devastated by war, the whole countryside denuded of of, of any trees at all, um, a population uh, that was that was undereducated, uh, and and there was a government that was not you know known uh, to be uh, to be uh, 
anything but really corrupt and and uh, and you had a, a very hostile neighbor and uh, of course you know people some people were very pessimistic about South Korea I think mm -hmm. what South Korea what South Korea shows is what what a people like the South Koreans can achieve if given the if given the opportunity and the fact that re there really aren't you know short-term solutions to long-term problems you have to stick with it uh, for mm -hmm. some time uh, to, re to really see the tremendous gains that South Korea has made I I think it's it should be obviously it is a source of tremendous pride for South Koreans, but it ought to be a tremendous source of pride, I think, for Americans as well. And of course. you know, of you course. don't you don't best yeah. thinking about the contrast too, right? The contrast between between South Korea's just tremendous success and North Korea's really failure and 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 how stark it is and, and how that 38th parallel divides really two different worlds now. You know, a lot I think a lot of our viewers would have seen the satellite imagery of the peninsula, you often see it, the nighttime satellite imagery, where you see the, the vibrancy of South Korea and all the lights in the cities. And, and then in the north, there's, there's darkness. And I wonder if you, if you might share with our viewers your explanation of that, that dramatic difference between, between north and, and south and, and, um, and what we ought, to, we ought to take from that difference. General, again, I think uh, talking about North Korea, I better start with some numbers. And then, and then one number I hope you will understand a little bit, which is that North Korea's per capita GDP today, it is $1,400. So North Korean economy is about where we used to be. I mean, South Korea used to be back in 1970s. And then the amazing thing is North Korea was already there in 1970s. So we, in fact, were almost on a par back in 1978 when I joined Korean Foreign Service. Economically speaking, South Korea, North Korea, we were almost on a par. Very similar per capita GDP. Today, as I already told you, South Korea is a member of 30-50 group. North Korean per capita GDP, it didn't change through all these years. So obvious question would be this, why? Why South Korea went all the way up there? And then why North Korea just stayed there after so many different decades? Again, there are a large number of reasons, but I, but I think I, I should be sharing with you about two factors. One, ideology. I mean, North Korea adopted communism, and then if anybody is interested in what change or what difference different ideologies can bring, they don't have to go any further than the Korean Peninsula. North Korea simply adopted wrong ideology called communism. Second of all, Based upon that ideology, then North Korea kept on making wrong choices. First of all, well, waging war in 1950, that was a wrong choice. Killing no less than 3 million people. In 1990s, the Cold War came to an end. Almost all communist countries began to open up. North Korea rejected to open up the society. What, what, what did it do? It, in fact, began to develop nuclear weapons. That, in fact, is one of the reasons why it didn't open its society. Even today, then North Korea, I think, has a great chance to open up and become a responsible member of the international community. Still, North Korea refuses to do that. So I told you, Korea, from day one, we moved in the direction of opening, liberalization, globalization. North Korea, on the other hand, chose wrong ideology, but at the same time, stick to this isolation, deep isolation. And then after, after so many years, after 30 years, 40 years, that in fact brought this stark difference between, between South and North Korea. You know, with changes in, in, in North Korean leadership over time, within the Kim family regime, there's been this hope that maybe there will be change. But I, I think, as, you, as you've already mentioned, the Kim family regime and Kim Jong-un now in particular seems really determined to hold on to the Juche ideology where they make sort of self-reliance and really deprivation, try to make that into a virtue. So I, I think if you say that North Korea succeeded in anything, it's really in just the abject repression uh, of its own people. And of course, as you mentioned, with the nuclear program and, and its, its vast military arsenal, it's also succeeded in, in posing a threat, a threat to South Korea, certainly, with Seoul so close to the demilitarized zone. Uh, the list of aggressions, of course, are, are very long. But I, so I, I wondered if you might just share with, with our viewers, 
you know, what your what your concern is about the long suffering North Korean people, but also the threat not only to South Koreans who who are so close to the to that threat, but really what what threat do you see that North Korea poses the world, right, and and uh, America in particular? Well, of course, but let me start with a threat, security threat that North Korea poses to South Korea. And of course, we just we just briefly talked about nuclear weapons of uh, North Korea. Well, today we believe North Korea has uh, 20 to 60 nuclear warheads, but that is not the only thing North Korea has. It has second or third largest stockpile of chemical weapons. Again, it has second or third largest stockpile of biological weapons. And HR, you just mentioned about the, the border between South and North Korea, so near to the South city, city of Seoul. And then they have long range artillery, we call it artillery, but at the same time, 600 millimeter ra radius artillery. And then they have hundreds of them, all focused, focused upon, or target, targeting upon, upon Seoul. And then at the same time, North Korea has all the delivery vehicles called ballistic missiles, no less than 1,000 of them, and all different kinds of missiles. And putting them together, North Korea obviously poses very serious security threat to South Korea. Not only, not only South Korea, we have to remember Japan is not too far from South Korea either. And then at the same time, US military bases in, in, in East Asia, in Guam, for example, Okinawa, for example, is not too far from, from North Korea either. But at the same time, I think when uh, you said, I mean, North Korea is posing security threat not only to South Korea, but to the whole world, including the United States. Why is that? I think it is because you cannot divide the security anywhere in the world. And then, and then the thing is, security is security. They are all inter interconnected. And then I remember meeting with uh, General Mattis for the time being, for the first time, that happened on January 28th, 2017. Why do I still remember even the date? <laughs> because I was so much impressed with my first meeting with, with, uh, with General Mattis. And then we just happened to share dinner on that day. And then there was January 28th, uh, 2017. So it was 20 days after the inauguration of President Trump. And in the following week, General Mattis, Secretary Mattis was planning to come and visit Korea. So we had dinner together and uh, I told him, where Secretary Mattis, General Mattis, thank you so much for coming to visit Korea so soon after you after coming to into office. And then what he said, I still remember what he said. What he said was that well, United is strong because of the allies we have. United States is a very strong country, but at the same time, even United States, we are not strong without our allies. That's what what General Mattis told me in our first meeting. And then think about it in the sense that where I used to be a young diplomat in 1990, working in Washington, D.C. And in Washington, D.C., everybody was talking about end of Cold War. Everybody was talking about new international order. Everybody was saying it is not only the end of Cold War, but at the same time, end of ideological confrontation. And there was such a euphemism in, in Washington, D.C. at the time. But at the same time, there was 30 years ago. 30 years later, today, you know it, I know it, we live in a very dangerous world. We talk about return of geopolitical confrontation, and then we even talk about, say, Cold War 2.0, new Cold War. But at the same time, we have to deal with very serious new dimension of security threats we didn't have in all the 1990s, like violent extremists, like, uh, well, high-technology weapons, like uh, turning space into militarization, like cyber warfare. We live, very unfortunately, we live in a very dangerous world. And then that, I think, is the reason why Secretary Mattis said, well, even such a strong country like the United States need allies. And I agree with him. Yeah, I, I think another related point is that real, I think what a lot of adversaries are doing these days, China's investing in these capabilities, technologies you've mentioned, they're trying to create sort of exclusionary areas of primacy, what some people call anti-access area denial. But it's really the forward position of capable US forces along with our allies that automatically turns what they hope would be denied space into contested space and ensures the kind of freedom of movement that we've all become accustomed to and profited from 
really since the end of, end of World War II. You know, of course, South Korea has been confronting this th threat from the North at least since June of 1950, uh, when, when, uh, when North Korea attacked. And there have been so many attacks and provocations uh, over the years. I wonder if you might share with us, how do you think we've done? How do you think that, that the alliance has done in deterring and defending against the threat over the years? And, and um, I think when I look at it, I see us really swinging at times between two different assumptions, right? One assumption is that if we just opened up, opened up to the North, that the, the North would fundamentally change because it would no longer be the hermit kingdom and it would see that the North Korean people could have a better life. And, and, and then we sometimes we swing to the opposite assumption and we say, well, really we should just isolate the North because it's an impossible state in, in the words of the scholar Victor Cha. It just, it can't really survive. It's just, there are too many contradictions within it. And now, of course, we're engaged in a, in a policy of, of, of maximum pressure and uh, that, that really is trying to convince Kim Jong-un he's safer without the weapons uh, than, than he is with them. How do you assess just that broad scope of time uh, from 1950 to today in our effort to deter and defend against, um, against the Kim family regime? And, 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 and how do you think we're doing today? Well, Asia, I think all of it comes down to, well, presently, I think the biggest security threat North Korea is posing is development of weapons of mass destruction, destruction, especially the nuclear weapons. And then I think all of it comes down to, in a sense, for us to understand why North Korea is doing it, why North Korea is developing nuclear weapons. And I think the, the, the answer can, can, can in, in fact, be summed up in one single phrase, which is, survival of the regime. North Korea seems to be thinking, in my mind, erroneously, that development of nuclear weapons, development of missiles, and then stockpile of all those chemical weapons and biological weapons, that in fact is the only way through which they could be, in a sense, protecting the survival or maintaining the survival of North Korean regime. And where well, it is determined to continue to do it, no matter what. And in 1990s, where they had something called the arduous march, and in the arduous march, it is believed they lost millions of population to starvation. Can you believe it? Millions of population to starvation. It didn't stop North Korea developing nuclear weapons. And then later on, there was a period called the sunshine policy. And then during the sunshine policy, then South Korea, we offered reconciliation. We offered peace process. We offered economic assistance. Again, North Korea enjoyed that, but at the same time, it, it didn't stop North Korea, continue to develop this uh, weapons of mass destruction. More recently, then of course, President Trump, he engaged max, max, maximum pressure as well as maximum engagement, and then met with Chairman Kim no less than two times in Singapore as well as in Hanoi. Again, it didn't stop North Korea from developing why? Because North Korea erroneously believes that that, in fact, is the only way through which it could be, well, in a sense, sustaining survival of the North Korean regime. And I keep on saying erroneously, because North Koreans say, North Korean diplomats say, well, look at uh, Saddam Hussein, look at uh, Konok Gaddafi. They are no longer there because they didn't have nuclear weapons. But at the same time, it's an it's an erroneous model, it's an erroneous logic. Why do I say that? It's because why Saddam Hussein was invaded? Because of, because of suspicion that he was developing nuclear weapons. And then why, why, why Konak Gaddafi came to the end that he met? Because he was suppressing his own population in such a such, such terrible manner. And then I think the better example for North Korea would be South Africa. South Africa, it gave up nuclear weapons. South Africa, it gave up apartheid. South Africa became responsible member of the international community. That, in fact, must be the model for North Korea. But somehow, after all these years, as I keep on saying, North Korea somehow is not, is not waking up. It is just stick, sticking to its isolation, deep-seated isolation, isolation, and keeping on, keeping on developing weapons of mass destruction. So that, in fact, is very unfortunate. Yeah, I think we just have to be at least open, open to the possibility that Kim Jong-un wants to keep his, his nukes. And, and do you think it's possible also that 
he might want to keep them not only as, as you suggested, to keep the, the Kim family regime in power, but what about this idea of, of red-colored unification, right? Where the, the North thinks that it can intimidate the South, it can drag the South down, it can coerce the U.S. off the peninsula as the first step of trying to forcibly unify the peninsula under Pyongyang's control. Is that is that also a possibility? Well, HR, your question reminds me of uh, something we used to say a lot during the Cold War period. And then at the time, we used to say, well, in the Western world, we believe in balance of power. And in the communist countries, they believe in correlation of forces. And then, and, and then we, we used to say they are two different things. Balance of power, it is more based upon objective uh, factors. The correlation of, correlation of uh, well, forces, it is far more subjective determination. And I think, I think, I think there, there, there is certain element of that in North Korean thinking. And then that, again, would be explaining the motivation for North Korea to develop, develop weapons of mass destruction. Where some people say North Korea, the only reason they develop nuclear weapons, it is because they look upon it as weapon of deterrence. Yes, they must look upon it as weapon of deterrence. But at the same time, weapon is a weapon. You could use it as a weapon of deterrence. But at the same time, if you think it is helpful for the preservation of yourself, then why not? They could be using it as a weapon of coercion. But at the same time, if they are really forced, then they, in fact, might be seriously thinking about using it. So they are all different kinds of scenarios, which is possible. And at the same time, one of the scenarios would be North Korea still sticking to this idea of correlation of forces. Correlation, correlation of forces, it is not only about economic power. It is not only about military power. It is not only about, say, objectively definable factors of power. It, in fact, puts into balance all different kinds of things, like, well, thinking of people. And they may be thinking, well, economically, we are very much behind. Otherwise, we are very much behind. But at the same time, and when it comes to correlation of forces, why, why isn't it, why, why isn't, isn't it possible? We, we, in fact, may be, be able to do that. That may be one of the reasons why, even today, they are, they are talking so often about unification. Right. On the communist terms. Yes. And of course, a, a, an additional danger to a nuclear armed North Korea is the fact that the North Korean regime has never met a weapon. It didn't try to sell to somebody else, in, including the nuclear program and the reactor that it was helping to build in, in Syria until 2007, when the Israeli Defense Forces took out that uh, that that reactor. And then, I remember and of course, that. Ambassador, there's the threat of the breakdown in the, in the nonproliferation regime not just in Northeast Asia, but even more broadly, what if what if South Korea thinks, well, I guess we need a nuclear weapon now, or Japan begins to have a conversation about it? Certainly, that's not in anybody's interest, including China's. And so what I'd like to do is talk to you about, about China, right? Because for years, the United States and, and South Korea and, and Japan have been thinking, gosh, if only China could do more, 95% of the trade with with North Korea goes across the Chinese border. And why doesn't China see that it's it's in its interest, right, to to, to have a denuclearized Korean peninsula and a denuclearized uh, North, North Korea? So so why hasn't China been more helpful uh, in denuclearizing North Korea? Well, General, Chinese leaders, when they talk about denuclearization of North Korea, uh, they always make three points. One, China supports denuclearization of Korea. Two, China supports stability in North Korea. Three, everything must be done in a peaceful manner. Well, Chinese leaders, they always make the three points. But at the same time, whenever I listen to that, I say to myself, that's a three point. But at the same time, for Chinese leaders, the most important point is the second point, stability in North Korea. Where there is a saying which is lead and peace relationship that, in fact, is, is an expression which is often used in China in order to describe the relationship between North Korea and, and China. Where in the Chinese strategic thinking, North Korea is a lip. If lip goes away, teeth will, will have to deal with all the cold air. <laughs> so that, in fact, is Chinese analogy of the relationship between North Korea and China. I think China very much sticks to that, still sticks to that view. 
interesting thing is, back in uh, 2016 and 2017, then of course, North Korea was doing all different kinds of uh, nuclear testing as well as missile testing. At the time, at the United Nations, they adopted Security Council Re Resolution 2270. That was March 2016. And I was very much impressed about that resolution in the sense that it was the very first resolution which in fact introduced something called sector sanction. And what was meant by the sector sanction was, it was the very first resolution which banned North Korean export of coal, iron, and then the list, well, it, it expanded again and again uh, through four other Security Council resolutions. So it extended to fishery stuff, it extended to expatriate workers, it extended to, say, banning uh, uh, financial, financial trans transactions with North Korea, et cetera, et cetera. And what was amazing was, well, North Korean export volume is $3 billion per year. South Korea's ex export volume, it is $600 billion per year. North Korean export volume, it is $3 billion. I, in fact, was looking at all those, all those uh, Security Council resolutions. And then I was doing some calculating myself. How much it comes up to? $3 billion. So in other words, if the whole international community really sticks to those resolutions, then North Korea would not be able to sell anything, export anything. We were wondering, I mean, at the time, 2016, 2017, we were wondering, how is it possible that China is agreeing to that. China has something called veto power. If China says no, then you cannot adopt those resolutions. But China said yes to those resolutions, very rigorous resolutions. And I was asking myself, how is it possible? Because I knew Chinese leaders, they were in fact, they make three points, but at the same time, their real point is on the second point, which is stability in North Korea. How is it possible that China is agreeing to all of these resolutions? And at the time, many analysts thought, finally, China is better. Finally, China gave up on North Korea. So that, in fact, was the expectation back in 2016, 2017. 2018, then it again turned around. I mean, with, with this uh, new, a new era of uh, reconciliation, dialogue, et cetera, et cetera. Then again, China just began to well, go in, in a different direction. So that's what happened. But at the same time, getting back, back to your point about China, I mean, it must be looking upon its national interest in wider perspective. I totally agree with you. China is no longer a small, impoverished country of 1970s. China, in fact, is, is such, such an important country in, in, in the description of Chinese leaders themselves. It's a great power today. Great power must adopt perspective of a great power. And non-proliferation, I think it is a very important value, very important objective. And not only, not only, not only, well, not only say important as a cause, but at the same time, realistically, think about South Korea, think about Japan, and then think about well, there is something called extended deterrence being provided by the United States. That, in fact, is working as a safety barrier for South Korea as well as Japan not to go nuclear. But at the same time, let's assume somehow South Koreans lose confidence, somehow Japanese lose confidence, somehow they should be thinking about their own national security, and then they have to face these North Korean threats in terms of nuclear weapons, chemical weapons, biological weapons, all those missiles, and who knows? Non-proliferation, nuclear non-proliferation can be a real serious issue just around the corner. And that, I think, is something Chinese leaders must remember as, as China is growing up to become a great nation. You know, one of the ways I think about this is that we have a North Korea strategy. We're trying to achieve denuclearization and save the world from all of these dangers that we're, that we're outlining. But China has a U.S. strategy and would very much like to push the United States out of Asia so it can create a dominant position. It can create servile relationships with countries uh, in, in the region. And I wonder if you might just share your thoughts on how you see 
the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party in recent years, even recent months in, in, in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic, when there's been a whole series of, of aggressive acts uh, taken across the Indo-Pacific region. And then, of course, South Korea has been a very, a very direct target of that coercion, especially in connection with the deployment of the, the air defense capabilities, the THAAD batteries into South Korea in the 2016-2017, when, when some of the sanctions that China imposed on South Korea, I think, took $7 billion out of the South Korean economy at, at the time. So how do you see the threat from the Chinese Communist Party, and how do you see South Korea positioning itself to, to protect its interests uh, as it faces this growing uh, threat and concern? Hmm. Well, HR, the 7 billion figure, I think that must be the figure I provided to Matt, Matt Ottinger during my time in Washington, D.C. <laughs> so I have to tell you, tell you, it was during the early period of Chinese sanction of South Korea. So, well, at the end of the day, it, it must be far larger than that. Seven billion, I still remember. I mean, I was meeting with Matt Ottinger quite often at the time. And uh, I remember... Just that he's now the Deputy National Security Advisor. Just I know, I know. When, and when, when, he was our senior director for Asia, right. Yes. But as a matter of fact, I think one of the reasons why he's there is because he used to have a great force in you. <laughs> right. But but anyhow, well, how to deal with China? I think that is that is of course a very important issue for Korea, but but, but at the same time, not only for Korea, for, for large number of countries around the world. And in East Asia, we have a very eloquent spokesperson for East Asia in Prime Minister Lee Shen-Yung of Singapore. So when he speaks up, I always listen to him. And uh, last year, last year I was uh, attending Shangri-La Dialogue in Singapore. June, uh, I think it was uh, June first uh, last year. And then he, he in fact was the, I mean, Prime Minister Lee Shen-Yung was the keynote speaker there. And then he made this point, which is that he was saying, China, you are emerging as a great power. But look around you, all of your neighbors, you're watching you with a lot of concern, with a lot of anxiety. Ask this question to you, why? Why are they having this much concern, this much anxiety? And try to come up with an answer. How to answer that? You don't have to be. But at the same time, there was a great question he raised. And, and then, he, he, and then he, he added something interesting. He said it so quickly, I do not know how many people picked it up, but he said, well, in trying to find an answer to the question, you may learn a thing or two from the United States. That was a, just a single sentence. And then he said it very quickly. I do not know how many people picked it up, but he said, in trying to come up with an answer to the question, maybe you could be learning a thing or two from the United States. Having said that, well, of course, the United States, Let's get back to the 1970s. Richard Nixon's visit to, to China in 1972. Since then, I think the United States had certain expectations about China, about the growth of China as a nation, and then there were certain expectations. And I think that the American expectation about the future of China, I mean, I mean, looking upon, upon, upon the whole, whole, whole thing from, from the perspective of the 1970s, I think one expression which best sums up American expectation about the future of China was very well summed up by uh, by Zelik. Zelik, yeah, responsible stakeholder. Zelik, <laughs> yeah, right. responsible stakeholder. Yes, right? right. Well, it's all right for you to grow up as a as a, as a stakeholder, but you must be a responsible stakeholder. I think that 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 was uh, what Zelik wanted to say. And what, what did, did he mean by responsible stakeholder? He didn't elaborate, but at the same time, he must have meant transparency. Opaqueness, 1970s, it may have worked in China. But as you grow up, you must become more transparent. Rural law, well, if as a small nation, if you practice rural power, it's all right. But now you're a great power. As a great power, you must, in fact, depend, depend upon your rural law. And Responsible behavior. I mean, as a great power, you must behave responsibly. And then respect of sovereignty. I mean, around you, you have small countries, but at the same time, well, they are sovereign states themselves. And then you must respect their sovereignty. 
Sadly, didn't, didn't elaborate what he meant by responsible stakeholder. But I think all of them would be put together in, a, in a, say, in a way elaborating what, what Zedek meant by saying responsible stakeholder. So that, I think, is what I'm expecting out of China. In the sense that, as I keep on saying, China is no, no longer a small, impoverished state. It's a huge, rich country. And then as a huge, rich country, then it must adopt perspective, values, which in fact would be becoming a huge, rich country. So that, that, is, that is my expectation. Well, Ambassador, as sometimes happens in life, we're disappointed. I think we had high hopes for, for, for China. And, and now I think that there's resounding disappointment really across the world. And as you know, China tries to frame this as really, this is an issue of the United States trying to keep us, us down. But I think it's clear to the world now after the spread of the of the of the COVID-19 virus, after the wolf warrior diplomacy, after the bludgeoning of Indian soldiers on the Himalayan frontier, after the extinguishment and repression of, of, of freedom in Hong Kong, the threats to Taiwan, the actions taken against South Korea. Okay, this this doesn't sound like a US problem to me. This sounds like a free world problem uh, against uh, really uh, the coercion and aggression of, a, of an authoritarian regime. Of course, you already alluded to this, right? The best way for us to compete effectively is with a strong community of like-minded nations and our allies in particular. What's your assessment these days of the, the South Korean-US relationship? You have skeptics in both countries, as, as you know. Uh, how do you assess the strength of the alliance today? Well, HR, I used to be ambassador in Washington, D.C. for no less than four years and four, four months. And then as an ambassador, then of course, and then, of course, I was motivated by one single motivation. And that one single motivation was how to widen our lives, how to deepen our lives. And then, and then well, well, 24 hours a day, seven, seven days a week, I was very narrowly focused upon, upon doing that. And I have to tell you, well, I'm not alone. There are a large number of people who think along the same way in South Korea. But at the same time, you're absolutely right in the sense that we're looking up at the big picture and then the big picture that, of course, China is emerging as a, as a, as a very important, but at the same time, as Li Shenlong rightly pointed out, when it is emerging, but at the same time, such large number of countries are looking up on the emergence of China with a lot of concern. And China, in fact, must understand about how it must behave as an emerging great power. You, you just mentioned about what is happening along China-India border in Hong Kong, in Taiwan, uh, in the relation, bilateral relationship between Korea and China. And then this is something, this is something I, I'm asking myself from time to time, which is, for the time being, there is something going on between the United States and China, which is, which is called as a trade war. But at the same time, it, I think, is much more, more, than, more than a trade war. And I think Chinese leaders understand very well there's a long way to go before it reaches the country like the United States in many sense of the world. And when it is engaged in such a such such a, a difficult relationship with the United States, then I think, well, uh, common sense will be telling you, well, try to, in a sense, make your backyard peaceful as much as possible. But somehow, it's having all these issues with India, with, with, with Hong Kong, with Taiwan, with, uh, with, with South Korea. And I wonder what, what is the motivation of China is. And uh, we're, we're talking about the bilateral relationship between China and India. I told you uh, my, my visit to Shangri-La last year. Two years ago, again, I was there. And the keynote speaker was Prime Minister Modi of, uh, of uh, India. And uh, my favorite general, of course, it is you and General Mattis. And General Mattis was there. And then General Mattis, in fact, he was coming from, uh, say, uh, say, say, change of command ceremony in Honolulu. And then that, in fact, was a change of ceremony where, uh, when Ambassador Harris gave up his command of uh, Indo-Pacific Command. That day, Pacific Command, in fact, was transformed to Indo-Pacific Command. And then General Mattis attended that ceremony and then came to, came to Singapore. There was an expectation, I think, in the mind of General Mattis. I didn't ask him, but, uh, but, but I think in, the, in his mind, 
there could be, have been ex expectation that Prime Minister Modi, as a, as a keynote speaker, would say something stronger with respect to China. And then I was listening to the, that keynote speech very, very carefully. And then, and then Prime Minister Modi was very careful not to step on the toe of China. He was very, very careful. And I said to myself, well, well, I understand. But at the same time, I told you, I mean, after this, uh, you just described it as bludgeoning death of no less than 20 Indian soldiers. I was just watching it. Why? Why at this time? Because this border conflict has been going on for several decades, forever. And why should they be reviving the border conflict today? So again and again, I think, where somehow there, there seems to be certain certain motivation, calculation, which I don't understand. But at the same time, I keep on thinking this is time for China to, in fact, to think seriously about how to behave as a big power. And, and then what we do, you rightly pointed out, what we do among like-minded countries, I think they must, in fact, push China to move in that direction, to, to, to behave in a manner becoming of a great power. I think part of the approach China is trying to take is, is kind of a divide and conquer approach. I think mm. in Northeast Asia, in particular, what China would like to do is is to drive the U.S. off the peninsula or get us to get us to leave somehow, mm -hmm. you know, coerce South Korea and then isolate its its main regional uh, uh, rival uh, Japan. Mm -hmm. I, I think one of the strongest messages we could send to, to the to the Chinese Communist Party is that the U.S. South Korea, the U.S. Japan, but also the South Korea Japan relationship is a good one. And and you know when I was National Security Advisor, I really enjoyed my relationship with. With Chung Wee Young uh, from from South Korea, the National Security Advisor from South Korea, and Yachi Shitaro uh, from Japan, and and uh, I don't know if you know this, but we had three confidential meetings in San Francisco <laughs> while I was went out. I was National Security Advisor to try to you know, kind of keep the family together you know, and focus on on the present and the future instead of, as you know, has happened in recent years. That relationship has suffered from the difficult memories of the past. So I, I wondered, sort of at the at the end here, if you might. If you might share with with our viewers something that's I think on a lot of Americans' minds is how well are, are South Korea and Japan going to get going to get along here, especially now with Prime Minister Abe, you know, has been a very strong, longest prime minister uh, serving in, in Japan, has just announced uh, his intention to to retire, um, and and President Moon still has a couple of years before his next uh, re-election. How do you see the relationship today? Do you see a prospect for it improving? I hope you're going to say yes. <laughs> Well, 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 well. My answer is uh, well, absolutely. Well, well. Of course, we, we can we can significantly strengthen relations between Korea and Japan. How do I know that? Because there has been ups and downs. We have the memory of ups and downs, and then the idea is how to keep the ups, and then how to how to do away with the, with the downs. I think that that in fact is 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 well difficult, but at the same time not impossible. And then when I say ups. Then I have to think about the time when Kim Dae-jung, DJ Kim, was the president. And then at the time, we had something called the DJ Oguchi relationship. It was that good. At that time, I mean, dur during DJ's time, the relationship between Korea and Korea and the United States, I'm sorry, Japan was that good. And then, and then uh, during, during DJ's uh, world presidency, then, then of course in 2002, we had World Cup soccer match. And then we co-hosted between Korea and Japan. We co-hosted World Cup soccer match. It was that good. I mean, during DJ's time. And then after DJ came in uh, Rong Hyun, and in 2003 he came into power in, two, in, in 2003. As soon as he became president, then he wanted to come and visit Japan. And at the time, I used to be something called Director General of International Trade at the Minister of Foreign Affairs and Trade. And then what did I do? Well, I was requested to come up with very specific ideas about further strengthening the relationship between Korea and Japan. And then one of the things I proposed was this, which is no shuttle flight between Kimpo and Haneda. Mm -hmm. And then what I meant by that is this, which is in Korea, in Seoul, we have two international, international airports, one Incheon, two Kimpo. Incheon is much farther away from Seoul. Tokyo is the same thing. They have two international airports, Narita 
and Haneda. Haneda is much nearer to Tokyo than, than Narita. But at that time, I don't know why, but shuttle between Seoul and Tokyo, it was between Incheon and Narita. And then I used to, used to get on the flight. And I said to myself, this is silly. Why don't I take the flight from Kimpo? Why don't I arrive at Haneda? That's what I thought, and that's what I proposed. And everybody loved it. I mean, South Korean government loved it, Japanese government loved it, and then this is, this is what we have today. Each time I went to Kimpo Airport, and I saw a long line of passengers getting on board their shuttle flight, I was just watching. Large number of them looked like business, but more important, importantly, they looked like tourists. They looked like high school students. How do I know? Because Japanese high school students, they still wear school uniform. And I was looking up on them, and I said to myself, well, that must be the future of relations between Korea and Japan. I mean, tourists, they come to Korea. High school students, they come to Korea for school excursion. And then other way around, Korean tourists, Korean high school students, they will come to visit Japan. That, in fact, must be people-to-people -people relationship, which, in fact, will further cement the, the, the ties between Korea and Japan. That was my expectation. And I was so glad about this small contribution I made through proposing and then, in a sense, implementing these, these new shuttle flight between Kimbo and Haneda. How do we manage that? I mean, us in, in the relationship between Korea and Japan. How do we manage that? We could manage it through, uh, in my mind, maintaining this, uh, this uh, where firewall between his issues of history on the one hand and strategic interest on the, on the other hand. Issues of history, we must, in fact, uh, respond very, very vigorously. But at the same time, we must remember these issues must not undermine strategic interest in Korean Japan. And we, in fact, somehow manage it to well, toe that line. In a sense, when having both both relationship, both 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 the very important issues, but at the same time not crossing the line. These days, uh, from time to time, I wonder if uh, we are we are being as successful as we used to be. But at the same time, we have this memory of, well, in a sense, strengthening relationship between Korea and Japan. And then, if we have the memory, then we we, we can implement the memory. So that's the reason why I'm confident we could do it. Well, I'm, I'm glad I'm glad to hear that, Ho Young. And I just want to say thank you so much. And the purpose of this uh, of this series is to develop what we're calling strategic empathy, a term we borrowed from historian Zachary Shore, and to view complex challenges that we're facing and opportunities that we're facing from the perspective of others, and to, and to learn from these discussions. It was really a wonderful program. Thank you so much, Ambassador Ahn, on behalf of the Hoover Institution. You've helped us learn about a battleground important to building a future of peace and and prosperity for generations to come. And it, it was wonderful to see you again. Thank you so much, my general. And, and then all the best. And I heard about your book, Battleground. And I'm, I'm anxiously well, well, looking forward to the, 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 the day when we'll be able to find that book uh, in the bookstore in South. And then, and then all the best, and then look forward to seeing you sometime soon. Well, thank you so much. And best to you and, and your family. Thank you. Thank you. Battlegrounds is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we advance ideas that define a free society. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.